Hi everyone, this is Robert Steinman, host of the RPG fan podcast, Random Encounter. I uh, had the opportunity to sit in on some roundtable interviews with the developers over at ArenaNet who are making Guild Wars 2. Uh, we have two interviews lined up for you. The first one is with Colin Johansson and Eric Flanham. And then the second interview is with ArenaNet founder Mike O'Brien and producer Chris Whiteside. Hope you enjoy. Um, one question that just to kind of get the ball rolling here. Mm-hmm. What was one thing that you absolutely positively wanted to desperately change from Guild Wars 1 bringing into Guild Wars 2? The one feature, the one shortcoming that said, I hate this, I gotta get it, you know, we gotta fix this. Do you want to start or do you want me to? I can't start. Okay. So, um, I mean, I think where this project started was us looking at. Um, making the game more persistent. Um, so we, we were working on um, uh, Guild Wars Expansion 4, like, um, which was, our, was, was to be our fourth campaign. And we were looking at a lot of radical changes and making the game um, more persistent. You know, one of the things that people always thought was, well, the reason why you guys are able to not charge a monthly fee for Guild Wars 1 is because um, you have all this instancing and stuff like that. That actually wasn't true. Um, our bandwidth costs are distributed differently um, in that case, but they aren't necessarily lesser. And so one of the things that we were kind of thinking was, well, there's no reason why we couldn't make the game persistent. The reason we chose not to make it persistent was to avoid a bunch of the things like kill stealing and kind of the, the pain that other people could inflict on you in an MMO. And we started thinking about ways we could get around that, and we started looking at changes that we could make to Guild Wars 1 in order to make that happen, and what ended up happening was we, the changes that we would have made would have been so radical, um, as you guys have played the game and what it evolved into, that we didn't want to do that to our Guild Wars 1 fans and sort of go, hey, you know that game you used to play, it's completely different now. Um, because we, we felt like we, had, we owed them the ability to keep playing the game that they had fallen in love with and that they kept playing. And so that's really where Guild Wars 2 came out was, you know, we can do lots of great things, but we can't do it without fundamentally changing what the game is. Um, so you know what we're going to do? We're going to make a sequel, um, and that game is going to do all of these radical things, and, and Guild Wars 1 will be left to be Guild Wars 1. So um, that was really the, the start of it all. So it was kind of that persistence was, was I think, the, the big thing. Um, I don't know if you have a... Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of, you know, the, I think one of the things that immediately followed that, and it really kind of goes with the persistence, is the, the content model that you experience in the game. You know, the traditional quest paradigm of you go out, you talk to a guy, you run off... You do stuff and you come back and get a reward and unless you are in a group sharing that quest with somebody else, you're not actually playing with other people, you're playing next to other people and in many cases in an MMO they're actually making your experience worse uh, and you know, we, we wanted to find a way to, to really get around that and it wasn't a problem we had in Guild Wars 1 but with going into persistence it was a problem that we needed to face and figure out how to overcome that and that's where our dynamic event system originated out of was 
we can't have traditional quests in our game. They aren't going to work. Let's get rid of them and let's embrace a content type that is one that is inclusive, that builds a sense of community between the players and actually actively encourages them all to play together as opposed to play alongside one another. Are there any games that you might have looked at and said they're doing this right? Any Um, So for me personally, there there really weren't. I know there's been a a few games and people kind of assume, um, oh, well, those guys... um, you know, took what um, Warhammer did or took what Rift did. Um, those games actually came way after um, we had we had actually started doing this. Um, if there was any game that I would say um, had this influence, for me at least personally, um, it was Dark Age of Camelot's um, Realm versus Realm Combat because there was this sense in that game that everybody had the same goals and, and that other players didn't hurt you. You always were like, hey, there's more players here. Cool, let's go let's go take that keep down, right? Like more players equals equals it's easier to take our keep down. And that's kind of where a bunch of that started was was um, that spirit of camaraderie that existed in that game was was asking ourselves, can we get that in a PvE environment? Can we make a PvE game that has that spirit in it? Um, you know, it's, it's that sort of thing where you look at like, um, you look at uh, team-based shooters and um, people play those games and they don't have to group with the other people. They don't have to like... Like, if I go to Team Fortress server, I don't have to talk to someone on Venn. I don't have to group with them to feel like I'm playing with them and having a cooperative experience with them. And so that was, going back again to the thing that Colin said, like, a lot of those games, those other cooperative experiences, we kind of looked at and said, a lot of those are PvP-oriented, so let's try to get that in this massive space, and let's try to do that um, with Guild Wars 2. And so, um, so I mean, there's there's... So many different games. I think if you, if, as you guys play through the game, there's obviously a lot of different games that have influenced us. Um, but I think a lot of those those cooperative multiplayer games, um, like the, the team based multiplayer games, um, we kind of started by by looking at that and saying, can we get that same spirit of camaraderie that exists in those games um, between people who don't know each other? Um, so, you guys said that you want to do away with the the holy trinity. It's the mm-hmm. the tank, the DPS, the healer in uh, MMOs. So now, how does that shape the way you guys are creating a character class? Because now you have to make a character class that can do everything mm-hmm. at the same time, but you still have to have them feel like an individual, like somebody different. The thief has to play different than the elementalist. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I, when we first started it, it was um, when we first started designing our professions. We knew we didn't want to have that trinity. Um, in particular because we think it's a barrier to being able to play with other people because you get those things where, like, if Colin and I start a game and we're going to duo it and it has the trinity, one of us is probably going to have to be a healer um, or we're going to be forever looking for that healer. Or one of us is, And most likely one of us is going to have to be a tank and one of us is going to have to be a healer um, in order to get that perfect setup. And, and what ends up happening is, I'm sure you guys have experienced this, I totally experience this in games, is like, well, you have two options. You play a profession that you don't really like, or you play with someone who you maybe don't really like. Um, and it's just like, oh, this is the only healer we could get. This guy's kind of a jerk, but I guess we'll put up with him, right? Like that sort of thing. And so what we, what we instead wanted to do was, again, to look at other game models. Um, you know, it's not true in other games that you can't have a cooperative experience unless you have the, the tank healer DPS thing. Um, and so that's, that's where that kind of came from. And we, and we started with the... Let's make our characters um, very versatile. Let's give everybody a set of tools. So the set of tools are things like um, 
conditions, the ability to cause conditions, the ability to cause um, to to give boons to other players, and then certain professions have the ability to manipulate those things, um, and then you combine that with like. Um, we're going to have uh, knockbacks and stuns and things like that. And then you have to give people creatures that sort of take advantage of that. So you give them things like, um, you guys will experience this tomorrow when you go into um, the dungeon. There's going to be a, a warrior who's this ghost, and he's going to be really hard to fight because he's going to, at some point, lift his sword up in the air and try to heal himself. And if someone doesn't knock him back or stun him or something like that, he's going to be, like, twice as hard to fight and... and um, and the idea is that you spread all these tools around to different players, and then it doesn't become um, whether or not you have a guy who can tank. It becomes, did we bring the right tools? Can, can Does someone have this tool to deal with this situation? Um, so in, in my mind, one of the big things about our combat that's very different is, in a lot of MMOs, what you do is you have a strategy, and you impose that strategy upon every situation you find. You go, here's a monster, tank, healer, DPS it exactly this strategy. In our game, what we tried to do was we tried to take that moment where things break down and get a little chaotic, where um, where things aren't working out and you actually have to react to what's going on around you. And that's kind of where we want our combat to live, is in the moment where you have to react to what's going on in the environment. So instead of taking a strategy and imposing it upon the situation, what we do is we try to give you a lot of tools, and then the, the situation you're in will dictate which tools you should use at which time. Um, that's that's kind of like a really high level philosophy sure. on how you do it, but but yeah, that's kind of the way we go about our, our class design. And then to differentiate people, um, we try to make it so that um, and this is a good a good example. Um, if you have a rocket launcher, um, a guy with a rocket launcher in a, in a first person shooter, and a guy with a machine gun, those guys are both doing damage, but they feel very different. Um, so so what we said was essentially a, a, a thief can do damage and an elementalist can do damage. The important thing is that you feel different when you're doing that damage and that and that you not that you that one of them shouldn't do damage or the other shouldn't do damage. It's the same way for and we applied that to things like tanking. So it's not that a thief can't get in and like and actually go, hey, you know what? I'm really hard to kill, I'm gonna get in your face and you have to deal with me. Um, it's he does it differently than a warrior does, right? And so that's the idea is that we try to have these archetypes and the classes feel different. So it's not that they actually can do completely different things. They, a lot of them have very, very similar tools. It's just the way that they do them feels very different. And hopefully you guys felt that as, as you saw, you know, hey, that, that elementalist seems like he's doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And, you know, that guy seems like he's doing, he's doing all kinds of crazy stuff, that sort of thing. So, about the, the business model <clears throat> for this game when, when the first Guild Wars came up uh, uh, all, all the games basically had uh, you know, a monthly fee to pay <clears throat> now uh, almost everyone is uh, free to play yep. so uh, how does uh, Guild, War, Guild Wars 2 stand in, in, in this new market I mean the business model is basically the same but yeah, um, so I mean the, the big thing uh, for us was we felt like there's a uh, the thing that, that prompted us to make the business model in Guild Wars 1 was that we felt like there's a substantial part of the potential audience that we have that doesn't want that upkeep of paying a monthly fee. Um, and, um, you know, our, our uh, microtransaction strategy is sort of, uh, and the gem store has sort of evolved um, as those things have evolved. We still have the philosophy of, and I hope you guys felt this as, we, as you played, we don't want the game to be unplayable if you don't buy things. Um, and right, I don't think many of you bought things, um, and it seemed like people generally had a good time. Um, and so we want to try to always have that be the case. But at the same time, um, 
we want to be able to you know pay our development costs and be able to support the game with a lot of content after we launch. And the way that we can do that is through the microtransactions. So if you want to think of it this way, a lot of uh, free-to-play games kind of get the wrap of they're, they're kind of cheap. They don't have, um, they're not a AAA titles. So what we do is um, the box cost is the thing that gets you the AAA title. And then the, the, um, the gem store, in our case, is the thing that allows us to support the game fully the way that any... Um, that any um, game that has a monthly fee would. And then we think that that's a better um, business model for people because at the very least, if I'm paying a monthly fee, there's, there's some amount of trust that I have to put in the developer that they're going to give me $15 a month worth of whatever um, every month. And you're paying that up front, and they might not give it to you. In many cases, they do. Um, there are a lot of games out there that are well worth the, the subscription that you pay for them. Um, but we feel like... With this, it's better for players because they can kind of pick and choose what they want to buy. Um, and it's better for us in that it allows us to remain more agile. So we can do things like, well, we put this thing in. Nobody buys it. Um, obviously, people don't want it. Therefore, let's just yank it. Um, let's try putting things in that people do want. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, that to me is the, is the thing about, um, about the, the, the sort of microtransaction models of things is that they allow players to, to sort of dictate what is and isn't successful. Whereas with a monthly fee, you basically, your only thing is to uh, unsubscribe from the game and stop playing the game, right, for some period of time. That's how you send the message that I don't like the way that you guys are running this thing after I bought it, um, that sort of thing. And so we think the, the microtransaction um, model is just better for us. Uh, last night, um, Rob and I sat with, uh, Christ, I knew I'd forget his name. Chris. 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 Yeah, Chris, and he talked a lot about that. Because we asked him the same question, yeah, and he he he, he talked a little bit about it. Um, I asked him, you know, is it kind of like TF 2s hats? Because um, he kept saying it's not paid to win. So do you have want to elaborate a little bit more on how the gem store is going to work? Like, a- well, I mean, um, I think all of the you guys can go in and check this out too. By the way, if you if you want to, but um, essentially what we do is we provide. Um, there's two kind of main categories, and these are things that we sold in um, Guild Wars um, One as well. The first are, um, which I think are the least controversial sorts of things, which are just cosmetic things, like fun things, um, those sorts of things. Like um, you have town clothes, um, you know, dyes for for your outfits, um, mini pets, um, stuff like that. Um, the second thing are things that are time saving. So they're things that. Um, so for example, in Guild Wars One, it was possible to um, you earn this thing called Balthazar Faction in um, PvP and you could use that to unlock skills. But you could also buy skill packs that, that contained packs of unlocked skills. And so the idea is that you can earn these things eventually in the game. Um, and I think the very important thing, um, and where I think a lot of people find their kind of distaste of microtransactions, is um, when we make it so hard to earn the things in-game that, um, that it's just you have to buy them at the point in which it becomes like, you know what, I really can't play this. Um, and that's a line that we don't want to cross. So, so if you look, we have things in the, in the store like um, there are experience boosts, right? Um, but um, I don't know if we've talked about our philosophy on experience points is just that we, we look at experience and your level as being a, um, a good measure of progress but not the end-all be-all of the game. And so because of that, we have an experience curve that kind of does, like most games, the experience curve kind of does this, if you were graphing it, you know, time spent versus level um, that you're getting. Ours does this. 
Um, so what that means is at about level 30, it ramps up in time um, and gets to, it's about an hour right it's now, right? It gets to about an hour, which is what feels right based on the amount of content that we have in the game. And it never goes higher than that. And so getting from level 40 to 42, about an hour. Getting from level 70 to 71, about an hour. Um, and so it would be, I think people could rightly be really angry with us if we were claiming, you know, the game's not pay to win. But by the way, it takes 70 hours to level and we're going to sell you XP boosts, right? But at the point where we're basically saying, you know what XP is? It's a really good progress measure. And if you're really impatient and you just want it sooner, um, here's a way to boost it. If you're um, not a college student who has a ton of time or if you've got a kid <laughs> or whatever, right? Like um, a lot of it is kind of the, the audience and recognizing that some people have a little bit of money that they would, would rather spend to kind of shortcut time. Um, and then the and then you know other people have an awful lot of time, and that's one of the important parts of our equation. Is we allow players um, to trade um, gold for gems. So um, a player who um, and and one of the things that we'll do is put all all of the stuff in the store that like you know is pretty non controversial stuff, but you would have had to pay money for say in Guild Wars One like a character slot, um, right? We give you a certain number of character slots. If you want more characters, you have to buy a character slot. So with the system we have in Guild Wars 2, it's ex- entirely possible for that college student who's got an awful lot of time but doesn't have any money to go farm gold out of the game, go trade um, that gold for gems from a player like maybe me who um, has you know um, has money but doesn't necessarily have all the time in the world to dedicate things, and then we can both kind of get what we want, right? Like I can get some gold, which means that I can j- head jumpstart some of the things that I do, and he can buy character slots with in-game, in-game money. And so, um, again, um, we think this is, you know, it's not completely altruistic on our part, right? We're obviously going to make some money on this. But ultimately, we think that we're not going to be able to stop people from, from buying gold. Like, people are always going to buy gold. So it's better for us if the players who, some of the players in our game can, can, you know, not turn into professional gold sellers, but can benefit from the people who, are, who would buy gold in the game. And to give them a place where they can do it, um, where they can trade that gold uh, for gems, um, the place where they can do it where they're not in danger of having their credit card stolen and, and having their account hijacked and have everything sold off of it and all of that, which is is pretty much what happens to you when you when you buy um, when you buy gold from external sources a lot of times. So um, so this is just you know kind of us recognizing where we think the market is going and trying to find a solution that allows us to support the game fully and is fair to our players. Um, yeah, so, so the, the important thing is for people, I think, to look at, try to play the game and not buy anything and see if you're having a good time. If you're having a good time, then I think we've succeeded in our making the game not pay to win. If, if you feel like you're like, man, I just have to buy all kinds of stuff, then we haven't lived up to our end of the deal. Um, and and if, if that happens, we'll, we'll change that stuff, right? Like, we're, we're going to be very um, uh, fast to act on, um, you know, uh, what our fans say. So, yeah. so ideally, you're selling a convenience, not a necessity. Yeah, yeah, that's that's kind of the idea. It's also like you've mitigated that a little bit because in the world, ver- in the world v world or in the mm-hmm. PvP, by making everybody the same level, you've kind of taken. A, you yeah. still have the, yeah. the skills and yeah. stuff, but yeah. you've kind of yeah. put everybody on an even playing field yeah. in terms of damage output. Yeah, again, it's um, it's it's that sort of thing where we, we didn't. 
you know, we played, we had Guild Wars one, and we didn't, we didn't allow everybody, um, our competitive PvP players. Um, there was kind of a big outcry from them that they they basically just wanted to test skill against skill. They didn't want to test like, well, this guy's played this long, and so he has this much unlocked, and this guy's played this long. And so one of the things that we ended up doing was um, we just said in for competitive PvP, we're just gonna. Um, even across the board and people can earn this thing called glory which um, acts kind of in two things you spend it to um, uh, to gain um, aesthetic upgrades in PvP and then the second thing that you do with it is you use it it kind of determines your PvP rank so you can compare against other people um, based on how much glory you've earned and and kind of uh, get a good idea of how you're doing can I get that bear with a monocle? Am I going to be able to get that? Uh, the the bear with the monocle. Where'd you guys see the bear with the monocle? Uh, Colin uh, just bring it oh, you just bringing it up, yeah. and now it has to be in the yeah. game. Like um, it, it has to be there. I'm not sure. Um, so so we probably will release that as mini pet at some point, uh, but I don't know if we'll ever release it as you know a ranger pet or anything like that. But uh, the gentleman bear. Yeah, the gentleman bear. Yeah. How important do you think stories at this point when you you have a case of like when I. Play Warhammer Online. When mm-hmm. I did play Warhammer Online and playing Rip now, I can't yeah. skip over story. Yeah. Like at first, I, tr- I try to read it. Sometimes it's really engaging sure. and it's sure. like, oh wow, that's really funny. But at, at some point, you yeah. just want to level. Sure. Sure. And not read all day, not read yeah. the book. Yeah. But then you have Star Wars, where uh, I have all these quests, and some of them are a bit repetitive. Like you know, go kill fifteen sure. Jawas. Well, I don't want to necessarily yeah. have a fifteen, you know, fifteen or yeah. five minute conversation. Yeah. About killing Jawas. So, <laughs> where do you find that middle ground? You want to talk about that? Yeah, yeah. I, I think the the biggest thing to help find that middle ground is to offer the player choice so that they can do what they want to do. Uh, you know, we we have built with our personal story uh, a really diverse, uh, really in depth story that constantly branches and changes as you go through the game. But you don't have to do it if you don't want to. Uh, we built this dynamic event system to fill the open world with all this content that players can go out and do, and they can play events, and they can fill renowned hearts, and they can go after skill points. Uh, and you guys didn't even get to see these today, but there are jumping puzzles and little mini dungeons scattered all over the maps that you can go off and do and find treasure chests at the end and other rewards. And the world is just filled with all of this content out there, so you as a player have a choice to do what you want to do to level up. Uh, you can go to World versus World PvP and level from level 1 to 80 entirely in there if you want to, and you never have to play your story. You never have to do events if you don't want to. Um, and the idea there is we believe that there are people who fundamentally are looking for a role-playing game that they can play with their friends. And our personal story will offer them the you know top of the line RPG experience, except they can bring all their friends along with them, have that personal story, and then experience this gameplay out in the open world with other players as well. Uh, and then we believe that there are people who are looking for this large open world experience, and they really aren't that interested in story, and it's not as important to them. And so the rest of the game is available to them, and they don't have to do that if they don't want to. And if at some point they decide, hey, I'm actually now really interested in their story, they can go back and at level 40 go back and start playing the story from the very beginning if they want to and start leveling up through that. And the story steps are all basically assigned a level of difficulty to them and the game level adjusts you down to the level of the story step. So you can always go back and have it be entertaining for you if you way out leveled it and then decided you want to go do your story. Uh, I, I think a couple of the core design decisions we've made are also uh, taking into account that aspect that some people just don't want to have to read all this stuff. Uh, and it's something that we've seen a lot in yeah. traditional MMOs is you get a quest and you go up and you get this giant wall of text. You're just like, no, I know what's going to happen. It's going to be collect ten things. I just click accept and go do it. Uh, and we've really tried to kill that mandatory text that you have to read anywhere in the game. Uh, instead, you know, anytime you guys were doing an event, hopefully you saw that you just walked into it, you saw what was going on, and you just started playing. 
And there are characters in the world shouting voice dialogue at you, like, help my farms under attack, or help the centaurs took over the garrison. We tried to replace all that written dialogue um, by making it more immersive so that you hear people talk, and they're using voice dialogue to tell you the things that are going on in the world, and then you visually see them and experience them, so you're drawn into it more as opposed to having to read what the story is. Yeah. That was actually the, the birth of the event system, was our desire to... Um uh, you know, like personally, I used to read all of the quest tests. Like when I played EverQuest One, I read everything. When I first started playing WoW, I started reading everything. And um, eventually, you get to the point where the game is telling you not to read stuff because um, really, who's going to keep track of thirty things at once um, or twenty things? And it starts getting overwhelming. And so the game is communicating to you, "Hey, don't read me. We're not important individually. We're important in aggregate." So for the most part, you can get away in WoW with um, kind of just ignoring a bunch of stuff or in games like that. Guild Wars 1 was like this too. Um, But occasionally there's this really cool, like, you know, um, a bit of content that you're going to miss if you skip everything. And at least for me, who's a player who I, I sometimes, I like to read things when they're cool and once they're like, they're kind of not very interesting. I, I kind of would prefer to not read them, but it's hard to know if every time you read something, the majority of it is not very cool. And and plus, us as developers, we work on all of this stuff. We don't want to write a bunch of text that nobody's going to read. <laughs> um, we put a lot of effort into that text. It's um, demoralizing. At the end of the day, that's us wasting our time. We could put our time into something else. Yeah. And so um, what we did is we inherently just said, so there have to be bread and butter, like, simple tasks to do in an MMO because MMOs, when people play them, they expect a bunch of stuff to do. But, but we also want cool story moments. So what we should do is just take, take those things and make a piece of content that's really good at the story thing and make a piece of content that's really good at the thing you do over and over again. And that's kind of where the dynamic events and the, and the, the, the little uh, renowned hearts come from. On the one hand, those are the things that are, are good at delivering that, like, you don't have to read, you just walk into the area, you do stuff, you get rewarded for it. And then we have the personal story, which is um, there are cutscenes, you know, all that stuff. And then the, then the other thing that we decided was we don't want to make, as Colin said, we don't want to make you have to play the thing that you don't want to play. We think that most players will prefer to kind of bounce around and play different things, but there are obviously a lot of people. Our, our lead system designer, Isaiah, for example, um, we, we take it as a major... Um, uh, victory in our story that he knows any of our story because he's one of those players who he just clicks through things. Um, and we know that both of those... And the, at the same time, there's players who are going to read every single line of text that every NPC says. And they're going to savor it and, and try to register it in their heads. And we want both of those players to be happy playing our game. So, Well, um, just to put in one question, um, I didn't want to ask it as first question. Sure. But um, you had a little... Our small team devoted to research for a console version. Mm-hmm. How's that working out for you? Um, it's still research at this point, so um, you know it's. Um, we won't be at E3 announcing. No, we won't be at E3 <laughs> announcing anything. You know, we we um, we're always looking um, as a company at trying to um, trying new things, looking at where we can branch out. We have R and D teams that do all kinds of different things. Um, you know, that's still just an, just an R&D thing. Um, I know there's always the fear that we're going to dumb the game down or something like that uh, by players. It or that feels we're a little bit it. like The Witcher 2, because yeah. when it came out, it totally felt console-ready. Mm. And now it's out for console, yeah. and it's really, really yeah. good. Yeah. yeah, 
Um, I mean, I, I think we'd have an awful lot of things to do if we, if we wanted it to be on console. I think that's one thing our, our R&D has shown us. But yeah, we're not, um, we're not even close to talking about that. No uh, secret DS yeah. version yet that we No, there's no about. secret DS. Like, <laughs> DS version would be awesome. Damn it! If we could make that work. Yeah. Just be um, the cinematic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm not even sure it could do that. So, um, but yeah, it's um, it's still at the point where it's a really small team and it's it's all just R and D. So it's a 3DS version. Yeah. <laughs> it's the Connect, and you do it all again. Yeah. Yeah. Don't, actually, don't it's actually make a, that joke. Sorry, with Connect. It's actually it's actually a Jaguar version. We, we really believe that that's going to make forward. a comeback. You guys had the you guys had the Connect set up in your uh, game room, and I yeah. thought about taking a picture of that, posting it on Facebook. <laughs> Connect Guild Wars Two confirmed, like first report out there. Just get a picture of somebody running. The dynamic. Can you tell us something about the mobile yeah. companion? Are you working on this? Um, we are still working on it. Um, I mean, the the things that I could I could tell you are things that we have talked about before, um, which are really broad. Like um, we have the ability for the app to um, communicate back and forth within the game. So I think you know, a couple of years ago, we showed um, the ability to. Um, have your friends list on your phone and be able to like see where your friends are in the game and on the mini map and things like that. Um, we're, we're still not ready to announce exactly um, how that stuff's going to work, but um, it is something that we're actively looking at. Yeah, Eric said we have R and D teams. That's the kind of stuff. That's, that's, that's like another yeah. another one of those things. Yeah. Like having a crafting app would be kind of awesome. <laughs> that would be on the buzz that or, that would be pretty cool yeah. theoretically. The theoretically. we finally got to see the dynamic events work and I, I know for me that was like you guys have been talking about dynamic mm-hmm. events ever since you announced the game and we're all sitting here a little cynical of that and we've seen it work like it, it's a really cool experience to suddenly see everybody rushing to again kill the centaurs but now how do you make it so that those dynamic events 80 hours into the game am I going to have to keep going because someone poisoned the water hole again am I going to have to keep going and doing that or do you guys plan on going in and freshening up those events with you know, monthly updates or something or is there a thought process there? Yeah, there's, there's really kind of two answers to that and the first one is that, you know, as you progress through the game the structure of events and the story of events and the story of the world changes drastically so it shouldn't feel like you're always putting out poison that is in the water supply everywhere you know? sure. as, you, as you progress through the storyline and the maps in the game you should feel like you're doing completely different things that fit with the story and the, the uh, region that you're in <coughs> And they should become more epic in scale as you progress through the game to a certain degree as well. Um, and you know the, that's a big part of it is making sure that the stuff that you're doing in the game doesn't feel repetitive across all the dynamic events as you keep playing. Uh, but they they will repeat again. You know every event chain progresses and moves back and forth down the chain so the content can happen again. Uh, and one of the things that we're going to do is uh, as, as you you asked about you know when the game comes out we are going to have a large dedicated live team supporting Guild Wars 2 from the day it ships. Uh, we view this as more than just a game. You know, when you make a, an MMO, you're making a service. You're making something that you know, people expect to be supported, and you need to be there day one ready to support it and expand on that experience. And the event system is the perfect vehicle for us to do that with. Uh, it's a really great thing so that we can take the opportunity to you know, have content that suddenly appears in the map that wasn't there before, and all of a sudden the stuff that used to happen there happens less frequently. So each character you play through the game, you might see less stuff, yeah. you know, completely new stuff. A, a really great example is, um, so that initial bandit burning field, the, the field that you guys are in, there's two events that happen there, right? There's the big worm queen, and there's the bandits that come burn the field. Um, if we were like a, a, a normal quest-based MMO, 
it would be very hard for us to add content in that area without it kind of stepping on the other content that's already there. With a dynamic event, um, I don't know, we could we could add things like if we decided that the script who you saw later, we were going to have an event where the script actually tunnel up and start stealing all of the all of the feed or try to steal the cows or whatever, we could totally do that. Um, and it would be a matter of making sure that that those things, the other things happen less often, and this other new thing happens. And so, and we absolutely intend to um, to keep the world fresh and alive by adding things like that all the time. So that's part of that that dedicated live team that Colin talked about. And again, going back to the to the you know the gem store and all that, part of that is that's what allows us to do that is is making that that additional income and having a big team that can support it. Cool. All those so. personal story options and everything that are in the game. We realize people are going to make a lot of different characters and play through the game to see all the yeah. different storylines, and we want to make it so that experience feels as unique and different every time you play through as possible. And the more different events you encounter, the more that's going to happen. Um, a year ago, that bandit field only had bandits burning the crops, and now there's a giant worm queen and bandits that happen there. So that's an example of just within a year of getting more more events that rotate in that area. Cool. cool. Um, Ten minute warning. Okay. Um, in Guild Wars 1, uh, one of the big achievements for any guild was getting their own guild hall. You know, it was their base of operations slash, you know, personal PvP map and that sort of thing. Uh, are we going to see something like this in Guild Wars 2? Is it going to be expanded to, so that, you know, your, your guild basically has its own little thief? You know, is, it, um, is there going to be basically so sort of housing that sort of thing? So I think I, c- I can answer that. Uh, so yes, um, at some point. Um, we can't exactly say or commit to when that will be. Um, the big thing about guild halls is we wanted to, um, I think we've mentioned this before, and, and the same thing goes for mounts and things like that as well. We don't want to do them unless we can do them right. Um, we kind of have that philosophy of if we want to do something with Guild Wars 2, we don't want to kind of do it halfway. We want to do it really well, um, and we want to do it um, super polished. And, and, and good. And so we didn't have time to do um, sort of a guild hall thing um, or player housing or any of that, but we fully intend to have that, um, have those things in, in the future. So, um, yeah, can't quite say when, but it'll, it'll be coming at some point. One thing guilds can do, and I think that this is kind of the big thing that they get to experience early on as a big guild, is uh, in world versus world PvP, when you take control of keeps, um, guilds can actually claim control of that keep as the one who did it. So if you and your guild work together... You can take a keep and you hang banners on it that show your guild's banner and your name shows up so everyone can see that your guild is the one who did that. So when you're out there fighting for the pride of your server and your world, you get an opportunity for your guild to show off to everybody this is yeah. what we did. Yeah, and I don't know if you if you took a look at the uh, guild panel um, very much, but if you go in there, you'll see that you earn um, a currency called influence as you do things with your guild. Um, and influence is used to... Um, the guild leader can go to kind of a civilization-style tech tree and research different things and do things like um, things that you can get are like you can get a banner that has your guild symbol on it that gives an experience boost to anybody who touches it. Um, so not just people in your guild, but other people. So you can, if you want to be a really social guild and go, hey, look how cool we are. Here's an experience banner for everybody. Um, you can do that. There's things like uh, feasting tables that have all kinds of silly um, things that you can interact with that you can go, hey, let's have a guild party. Here's a feasting table. like, And you use your influence to get those things. By that same token, there are also things that you can buy in World versus World. So once you've claimed a keep, you can do things like boost um, the amount of um, XP your guild members get or anybody gets when they're fighting around your keep. You can do things like make the guards more powerful, all that kind of stuff. So 
Um, so we, we have a lot of that guild influence symbol uh, system is really flexible in that we can always add new things to the tech tree. Um, we can always give you new things to spend that influence on. Um, and so there are a lot of things that you can buy initially, but um, we do plan to add constantly to, to what guilds can do together there as well. I have one question about the dynamic events. It's more like three questions. I'll okay. try and simplify it. Because the main story, the dynamic events seem to be the branching path of the game. I, I, so far, I don't feel like I've made a choice in the main story. Um, but as far as how they branch, what's the process of that like developing, you know, at, at what tier of the event? Because I know that I have failed to save a farmer, but then I still have to defend, you know, his farm. And I cleared that. But how does it go? Like, how, how do you guys break down, like, well, this is what's going to happen if this doesn't, isn't, you know, achieved? And will that be modified sort of to follow on Rob's question later on in the future, depending on how people approach dynamic events? We, I, I think we approach them on a event chain by event chain basis, and we take it based on what is the story of this area, what is the story that we want to achieve with this area, mm-hmm. uh, and what makes sense here. So if it's a, if it's a you know, a castle, that uh, centaurs come and attack the castle, what would make sense going into this? Would the centaur set up catapults before they're trying to take over the castle? All right, then we need to have an event where there's a group of centaur siege masters who come down, and you can intercept them. And if you don't intercept them, they set up the catapults, and then they start bombarding the town. And that's what triggers the attack to kick off. And now a new event kicks off where the attack comes, and there's a secondary event going where the catapults are set up, and you can blow those up. And then if they take the town, what events should be running that trigger off of that? Well, they would take the people in the town captive, so they should take those people back, put them in prison, and there should be a rescue event to get those people back, and another event to get the town back, and another one to wipe out the catapults that are still guarding the area. And that stuff just kind of branches out and turns into, like, okay, well, narrative-wise, what makes sense? Now, here are all the events that fill this area in and the order that, that they kind of tie in together. It's actually probably harder to um, stop doing events mm-hmm. um, than, yeah. to, than to do them. A lot of the chains just kind of suggest more events to yeah. themselves, right? Yeah. So and certainly it will be very easy for us to keep expanding on those chains. There are oftentimes we're like, well, okay, okay, we have to stop. We're going to work on this event chain forever if we don't go do something else. So yeah. there's, there's certainly a lot of opportunity to do that. Um, in regards to the personal story branching, I think early in the game, the big branches that you experience are your biography choice that you make, where you say, this is, this is who my character is. That affects kind of the first two core storylines that you experience in the game. So that's where that first real branching happens is when you make right your character. Okay. Uh, and then the second one happens about level six to eight in each one of the different races in your first storyline. You're going to get a choice that you pick between two options, and that branches your story and sends it in two different directions. That changed the ending of that very first story. Yeah. Arc. So what what um, story? What was the storyline basically that you were on with your? Uh, I went with the human engineer who lost her sister. Okay. <clears throat> uh, Colin actually saw me finishing up like a quest line, and I was like, I'm gonna roll a new character and see yeah, what yeah. that intro is like. But I was at a point, I think he said, where the consequences of my choices were about to like become. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the sister one was going to start paying off. And then in, were you a noble, commoner, or streets? Commoner. Commoner? Okay. So you uh, you had the uh, you had Petra, and you had Andrew, and you uh, you got to deal with yeah. with all the bands in there. Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So the, the big choice in that one, that one's Orphanage Hospital. Well, right? I guess I take it back, yeah, because yeah, I... It was yeah, like, you chose which of those to save. So, so if you were to go back to that instance, that's your home instance, uh, which one did you pick? 
I went and took care of the kids. Took care of the kids. Okay. So let's say let's say um, so if you go back, what would end up happening is that hospital will be demolished in your home instance, and um, you would see all of the like the soldiers are having to like take care of that. If you had made the opposite decision, the um, orphanage would be completely destroyed, and the kids would be all out. Not to mention the the things that you do in those two different things are completely different. So so you went on a completely different mission than you otherwise would have gone on. Um, had you made the opposite choice, so yeah, I will back that a little. I totally yeah. forgot about that. But no, 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 totally. It's a, lo- a lot of times it's hard to know when you've made a choice because you don't necessarily see what would have happened had you done the other thing. You all, does anyone have one last question? What do you guys have against centaurs? <laughs> like seriously, <laughs> they're just great. I have a real quick artsy question. Yeah. Um, yeah. You, you guys are obviously. I mean, there's nothing but art everywhere all around yeah. the studio. You yeah. guys obviously are focusing heavily on art design. Yeah. Um, and that's really apparent when I made a character. I made an engineer, and that was steampunk, and I made yeah. a necromancer, and that necromancer basically looked like Alice in Wonderland, who yeah. cast dead space ne- necromorph spells. Yeah. Um, how important is, is this art direction to making people identify with their characters? That's a good question. Oh, I think that's yeah. absolutely important. Um, I think one of the things that, that has driven the game, we're, we're a much more art-driven studio than I think a lot of studios are. Um, we work really closely with our artists to to try to build a very unique world. Um, like we've we've got a lot of things in our world that that exist only because someone did a piece of concept art about it. Um, and especially once it, when it comes to the professions, um, a lot of a lot of the professions um, will describe what we kind of want. Um, we'll talk to them about it. They'll do a piece of concept artwork, and a lot of times it will change. We'll go, okay, well, we should change this. Like. Um, I think the Guardian, for example, got his spirit weapons because um, Kekai did a, an awesome picture of like uh, um, of, of a Guardian that had this ghostly hammer in back of him, and we were like, okay, that's a new category of skills for the Guardian, um, right? Like um, the the mesmer um, shattering effect is purely like um, uh, again Kekai, uh, who's one of our, our main, who's our, he did he did the this piece of concept artwork of a, a female human mesmer like where she's got this mirror behind her that's shattering and we're like okay well can we do that and you know we then go to our our, um, uh, our technical artists and they're like yeah I think we could figure out a way to, to like we'll turn the character into a plane and then we'll shatter the plane and all that and, and so it it really really like like one of the things that's really important to us is is um uh, kind of immersing the character in the world, and we think the art design is a huge part of that. So it's 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 massive, like as far as just how much like art means to us at the studio, and how much um, from a gameplay standpoint we look at for art for inspiration and and back and forth. So yeah, it's, yeah. it, it pervades even in the UI too, where you're you know if you if you find yourself playing the game and looking where your eyes are, you're almost always drawn to the middle of the screen. And, you know, if you look at when you're doing a traditional MMO, you're usually watching the outside where all the UI elements are, and they're moving up and down, you're constantly tracking all that stuff. And that that's a conscious decision to get the art to really draw you in and make it feel like the UI is part of the game world so it isn't something that you're just focused on the outside, but you're actually looking at the art in the world. Can we get your names and titles just yeah, for this? Yeah. Yeah. I'm uh, Colin Johansson. I'm the lead content designer. Um, Eric Flanham, I'm the uh, Guild Wars 2 lead designer. Cool. I'm going to steal the whole thing right now. Okay. Okay, 
So, um, you asked me to introduce myself again. Um, I'm Mike. You guys know me. I'm the studio head of ReadNet. And we've got Chris Whiteside, the senior producer on Billboard Studio. Uh, well, I'm here. Uh, softball question to start with. Okay. Uh, is there going to be another E3 for Everyone event this year? Uh, no, there's not. Right. So, I mean, people who want to get in the game know how to get in the game at this point, right? First of all, you can guarantee yourself access to the game by pre-purchasing it. And secondly, we'll, of course, have, you know, ways that people can win spots in the betas and stuff like that. So, since we're already um, in such an open, you know, format, um, that basically has it covered. Chris, you, you were telling us the other night that you came into the development cycle uh, kind of late. I think it was like 10 months ago. That's correct? correct. So what has that transition been for you? I mean, your your experience was like primarily racing games. It seems like you've made every racing game of the last 14 years, or at least <laughs> you have a credit on most of them. Yep. So how has the transition been into this large-scale MMO? Uh, one word, awesome. I mean, you know, <laughs> uh, I, you know, like I said last night, uh, all my life I've played MMOs, um, nearly every single one, I think. Um, and I never really thought I would get the opportunity in my career because I had kind of been pigeonholed and mentored in driving games and uh, later on in action games. But, uh, you know, luckily for me, I also got to have, by accident, a lot of experience in setting up studios and, and that kind of thing. So I think um, in terms of coming here, uh, it's been... You know, I think I would agree with this. For me, it's been it's very been very nerve wracking. You know, I'm very vocational, and and so it was a very you know I had to think very clearly about taking on this challenge because once I you know set my sights on something, it's all about getting the very best out of the team, and it and uh, you know I don't like letting anyone down, and the a company this big uh, with a challenge this big in terms of how much the company pioneers. Um, you know, sets up a, a lot of challenges, uh, and so um, I think overall for me it's been, you know, Mo's been very supportive. Um, it's a fantastic team. And most of my time has been catching up to their level of of uh, experience uh, in this area, and then doing my absolute best for them to service them properly so that they can do the best job that they can. So um, you know, I always love to be hit by challenges, and I'm really proud to be part of this team um, and it's an exciting journey and uh, every day I just want to make sure that I'm doing the best I can so these guys can do the best job they can. Great. I have a question about the development of this entire project um, because I also, as you were speaking about last night, NCSoft is more or less backing the project with a very passive, hands-off focus, just be creative. Is that more difficult than having you know deadlines and to deliver builds or anything? Is pressure from yourself more pressure than pressure from a publisher? Uh, certainly uh, it is the case that we're always our, uh, you know, uh, harshest critics and we, you know, drive hard, you know, to make a great game. Um, NCSoft, NCSoft is a great company um, to be part of, right, because NCSoft is development-driven right from the top. You know, TJ Kim, CEO of NCSoft, um, is super passionate gamer and you know game developer by trade, um, and the kind of feedback he gives us is um, very ambitious feedback, right? Is very you know go be the best in the industry at this kind of feedback, um, and then you know leaves it to us to define what is the best in the industry and how are we going to rise to that challenge. Um, so, but I mean everybody at ArenaNet is here because we have this singular vision, right? We love online worlds. Uh, we want to take online worlds to a new place that they haven't been before. 
and we want to make you know um, an industry changing um, online world. Um, we really want to um, you know offer players that experience of the truly dynamic um, online world that they've dreamed about but they haven't seen before. And so, as you said, uh, as you guessed, we are our harshest critics in making sure that we're living up to that standard. Another part of that is also you know nothing comes for free, and so. You know, with Guild Wars 1, the original crew and that, and the founders and Mo, they had to earn um, the, the right to be, able to, to be able to be this creative and have this much freedom. Purely from um, a development point of view, you know, we, um, but before, I, you know, before I came here, um, and certainly since I've been here, we, have, we promote a very collaborative kind of environment. But the cool thing about it is, is that it's not internalized. We, we make sure that the collaborative environment spans as much as NCSoft as possible, whether it's TJ or his groups in terms of uh, metric assessment or quality assessment or fun assessment. Um, and so everyone is basically, instead of it being like, well, you know, this better be great or you're in big trouble, it's kind of like, just how far can we push things? And then I guess the second thing that I wanted to talk about, which is really interesting that Mo and I kind of joke about and, and ponder on every so often is, you know, coming here and having worked on a lot of um, console games where you are time confined and there are a very limited set of, of expectations that you have to hit. Um, you know, you're, you're thinking more about how much quality can we get in the time that we have. That's definitely part of what we're doing here, but then also because the team is made up of like crazy developers who are really good at what they do, there has to be a tempering between you know, like iteration to get it to the very best it can be, but not at the cost of other areas of the game or, uh, you know, or, the, or the cost in terms of the... the um, you know how that affects team members and so on. So that's definitely something that I've had to learn more about. Of you know, basically iteration is a great thing, but how do we get better at it? Um, so it's a fantastic position to be in. But like we were talking about last night, it really is. It's all up to us, and it's all up to how much drive we have and um, and just how much we want to exceed the expectations of our of our community and so on. So there is a lot of pressure. Yeah, good pressure. Okay, when. Because you're working up to to release, uh, what do you expect to sell uh, according to numbers, and when will you be satisfied? Well, we're not going to make uh, you know numeric sales forecasts for you, um, <laughs> but in terms of when we'll be satisfied, um, we'll be satisfied when Guild Wars Two is the number one MMO in, in active players. Or um, what, what is the most successful MMO? Uh, what defines the most successful? Okay, I'll define it more broadly than that. Um, you know, certainly all those things are good, and we'd like to be um, all those things. But, uh, but really, um, any MMO is in it for the long run. And, you know, we are in this for the long run, right? So, um, so we're making an online world that we want people to um, enjoy so much that they bring their friends into um, and hang out, um, you know, year after year as we introduce new content into the game. Uh, we've got so many things that you know we can introduce into the game uh, that we're excited, you know, to um, just keep driving this living world. Um, and I think that uh, you know I think our biggest challenge right now is, of course, Guild Wars Two is kind of a very new and different game, and getting the word out about anything new and different is is always challenging. And that's where you guys all come in, right? Is you guys have to help us get the word out, right? Like. Obviously, um, you know, uh, obviously you've um, heard about our manifesto video and how we're saying that we're new and different and 
uh, you probably came here today uh, wondering, is the game really what they say it is in their manifesto video? And hopefully after playing it, you've seen, yeah, it really is what we say it is in our manifesto video. But all the customers are going to think the same thing, right? All, all the potential customers, they're going to think, you know, I don't know, everybody uses big language about their games. Is this really, you know, uh, is this really a groundbreaking game? And we got to get the word out to them. And I think it's going to be you guys, it's going to be word of mouth, you know, it's going to be all those things to really um, try to get people to understand that we really are doing something new and different. And we really are creating an online world that's a truly living, dynamic online world for them to enjoy. Once they enjoy that, I think the sky's the limit. You know, I think that uh, that um, players will come to Guild Wars 2. Uh, I think that um, you know any online world, um, it has the networking effect. You know, you want to play uh, because it's a great world, and you want to play because your friends are there. Um, and I think people will bring their friends to Guild Wars 2. Uh, we kind of, you know, certainly um, hope that all of our fans right now that are following us, all the hundreds of thousands of people who are going to play this coming weekend, are also our advocates. You know, are also going out to their friends and saying, hey, there's something new you ought to check out. Come check it out. And so, you know, I'm not going to judge, um, you know, is it sales in the first year, um, you know, or is it, uh, you know, active user base in the first year or whatever. But I think, I think we've got something. I mean, honestly, like, hey, I get to say this because I'm a studio head, right? But honestly, I think we've got something. Uh, I think players are going to see it. Uh, I think that uh, dynamic events are just a way better content model than people have experienced before. I think, you know, breaking down all the barriers to being social, uh, really bringing people together uh, is way better than people have experienced before. And, uh, you know, we're in it to win it this time. We were, we were uh, number two last time behind World of Warcraft, but I want to be number one this time. So you're going to be the World of Warcraft beer that everybody is waiting for? <laughs> I don't know. Everybody keeps using the word World of Warcraft killer. I don't know. That's uh Bow beater. Well, I think you, you guys are definitely confident about your product, and I right. really like this one approach that you have, which is you, you still don't have a release date, yeah. but you're saying, all right, you reserve the game. Here's a free weekend for you to yeah. have it in your hands, and it gives you guys a chance to get feedback from the people about what you're making, and I think that shows a tremendous level of confidence. So now when you get the feedback from the player base... What do you do then? Do you sit down and go through page after page of forum? We were talking about this earlier today. Do you go up, do you go through page after page and look for everything, or how do you sift through that information? Yeah. So let me finish the uh, previous sure, uh, sure, sure, thought, sure. and then I'll get right. <laughs> um, so you know, you were asking me, are we going to be the wow beater? Are we going to be the wow killer? And, and I was just going to say, everybody uses the term wow killer, and come on, nothing is going to kill wow other than wow, right? Um, games don't just like I'm dead, you know. But uh, in terms of like. Do people, do gamers, right? Do gamers honestly believe that we've seen the most popular game that will ever exist and nothing ever will be more popular than that? I don't think anybody really believes that. Um, and so, you know, I don't think um, people have to phrase it in that black and white term, like something has to kill WoW or else, you know. I think that, uh, um, I think that there has been a progression. And yes, one has been on the top of the heap for seven years now, and that's a long time to be on the top of the heap. But I think there's been a progression in our industry of... Uh, of um, being able to make games that attract more and more players. And I have very high sights for how many players we can attract to Guild Wars 2. And, to answer your question, uh, how do we take on feedback? Um, you know, I was actually 
just talking about this in a previous interview, and I said, um, somebody was ask, asking me um, if there is a um, procedure that we use to take on feedback, and I said, no, it's not procedure, it's philosophy, right? Um, and so, um, so it's really, it's kind of how we build our company, right? Like, our company is a very iterative company. Um, we, when we build games, um, we build games, um, you know, actually the very first thing that we do when we develop a game is we make it multiplayer playable. Uh, we make it so it patches itself, you know, every time somebody runs a new build. We do like 20 new versions of our game a day. Um, and um, then we start layering in game mechanics and we say, you know, what's fun, what's not work, what's not fun, and we constantly tweak the game according to what's working in the game. And, um, and so uh, as we do that, we bring in um, external testers, right? So we've had alpha testers in Gilbert's for I don't know how long, a long, long time right now. Um, and, uh, and they play 20 new versions of the game a day. Um, and then, you know, they're constantly telling us, you know, oh, I'm loving this new thing. This is so great. But this other thing, I just don't get it. I don't see what it's supposed to be. And it's like, oh, that's a problem that they're not getting this. You know, we're going we're gonna, to um, capitalize on that. And then the more we get... Um, you know, the more we're able to talk about the game in public and, and go broad, the more we can, um, we can start to really get broad feedback from lots of players, right? And so um, everybody in this company, we've been, you know, we've all been trained, you know, reading alpha forums for years now. Um, and, you know, we all kind of, you know, obviously those of us who have been in the industry forever, we kind of know what you get and what you don't get out of um, forum feedback. Um, like, you know, you get a lot of complaining and you have to have thick skin and, you know, but, um, but everybody at this company really learns that everybody reads the forum feedback all the time. And we get to a point where it's like, you know, there's a news article. One of you guys writes a news article and then there will be, you know, 50 replies to your news article. We read through them, you know, and we want to see what are people saying about this. Uh, and so we really try to get ourselves in that mindset of we're providing a service to customers, right? And you can't be totally slave to it because you, you have to have this core vision of the game and you have to understand these are our design pillars and every decision is going to match the design pillars. But if there's something customers just aren't getting in the game, why aren't they getting it? And, you know, what do we need to do to make it more clear? Or maybe that system just isn't as fun as we thought it was and we should, you know, how can we adapt that system to make it more fun? So we really developed that way throughout the entire life cycle of the game, which is why it becomes, you know, kind of second nature once the game is released to keep developing that way. And it's the second nature of it whereby we're able to, not always, but able to predict what might be coming up. So we'll go through things and we'll see something mentioned the first time and because we're very close to the product, um, the game, the world, uh, we'll basically see that and because we have experience in it, we'll look at it and go, okay, this is something we should flag and watch out for and start preparing for and then if we see it more, then we're kind of always ready. So I would say, you know, eight times out of ten, nine times out of ten, a lot of what we see we're prepared for because we have this kind of like symbiotic relationship with our alpha players um, and, the, and the, the community as a whole, including, you know, websites and so on. And so we try and stay ahead of things, um, but we're also very cognizant of, you know, something comes up, uh, you know, sometimes we can't see the wood for the trees, something comes up, um, and, and if, you know, if, if we think it's serious, we deal with it um, in a prompt and, and a, you know, a high-quality way uh, and get it out as quickly as possible. Um, to then gauge feedback and iterate on that appropriately to get it to the point where, you know, it reaches the same level and exceeds market expectations along with the subset of our other features. So, uh. When you say <clears throat> that you must uh, 
um, <clears throat> spread the word about yeah. how yeah. Uh, groundbreaking this game is. Are you planning some free trial version, free weekends, some way to collect people experience the game? So I think we'll get into that kind of thing um, after we release the game. You know, like right now, uh, we've got our work cut out for us, <laughs> and we're focusing on, you know, um, getting this game out to um, all the customers who are eagerly awaiting it. Um, and then after we've gotten, you know, after we've released the game, you know, we'll turn to our people understanding, our people getting the word out, and what do we need to do, you know, additionally to get the word out. I think that goes back to the, the question from you earlier about, you know, what does success mean to us? That's a really fascinating question, and the kind of the way I was thinking about that is, you know, it's difficult to put a number behind that um, because there's a lot of steps before you start talking numbers. And specifically, you know, for me, success is when we reach a critical mass whereby we have so much investment and so much interest uh, in the game and, and so much immersion that we're then able to turn that energy and continue to, like, propel us up the mountain in terms of how many people we actually have in our world. And, and you know, that's kind of a little bit about um, what you were mentioning, too. It's, you know, we're, we're definitely taking it to a certain point and we're doing everything we can to meet and exceed expectations and create a truly fantastic world that no one's ever experienced before. But the game only starts, basically, or the world only starts when we go live. And so we need to get to that point where we have this critical mass of people that really do care about what we're doing um, and then embrace that more. And it's at that point that, you know, it really will propel us in terms of, uh, you know, people exposure of the game, people talking about it, people saying what they really want. And... Um, being able with many elements of our game to say, well, okay, well, we've come this far, what is it that really, you really like about this, what's really special, what can we do to build on this and what can we do better? And, and I think the reason, one of the reasons we're very confident um, about the work that we do, not necessarily how great the game is, but we're confident about the work that we do because we do have a support network and that support network's our community. The only thing that keeps me up at night and really worries me is that, uh, that we let that, that support network down. We can't afford to do that. Um, and so that's key to, to making this world something special, and always has been. Well, I mean, in particular, you'll be able to speak to this to, to a degree, because I mean, you, this is your first company where you're working on an MMO. Yeah. And obviously racing fans, first-person shooter fans, they're very uh, vocal about whether they like the game or not. Yeah. But no, nowhere is that more important than an MMO's longevity. And how, how would you define the typical MMO player as far as the community, I mean, sorry, I'm having trouble with this question. Okay. Uh, as far as the community feedback and how important they are, I mean, they're almost like a third game developer like that's always in constantly in the room. Because you can ship a first-person shooter or a racing game, it can be complete crap. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, you see games that are, come out where they're just trying to hoodwink people into buying them some movie-based games that do that. Yep, and I've worked on, I've worked on one of those at least recently. So. We don't have to talk about that. Yeah, we don't have to, don't have to talk about that. <laughs> has, that been, has that been alarming for you, though, transition to an MMO where it's, like, immediate? It's actually something that I was looking for. So, you know, um, working... So if I, if I could talk a little bit about what it's like to develop almost in isolation and with console games, you know, I think that, you know, one of the big things working console games is, you know, get focus tests in, get 10 people in for, like three days to tell you how good or not your game is, you know, I mean, <laughs> that doesn't really cut it. But because I've always been a, a big fan of um, online games and online worlds, you know, one of the big, the key things for me in terms of being a developer and really wanting to 
to, to change the way that people interact with um, games and so on um, was to work in an atmosphere whereby um, you do have, you know, for want of a better word, this symbiotic relationship where you really do have that third developer there. Um, and I'd always been wanting to basically get to that point because, you know, for a very long time I was a game designer. Uh, I always wanted, I learned very quickly the importance of that games aren't necessarily, you know, it's what you want to make and therefore everyone's going to like it, you know what I mean? You know, when you make a game, you're providing a product to a client that you're essentially building it for them, you know? Um, and uh, when you're doing that almost in isolation in certain types of business models, it can be very difficult because once the game launches... Um, there's not really that much you can do about it. You know, you've had your one shot uh, and there's your sales and, and you, you think, okay, well, you know, I wish that we'd done that better and that's why there's a lot of sequelization and, and franchise fatigue that comes from that. Um, so coming here, you know, for me, one of the big reasons for wanting to work in an MMO environment or as I prefer to call it, you know, an online world environment, anywhere where there's a massive amount of players connected to the, to the business model in the world, um, is the power and, and the kind of like creative power and, and the iterative power that that brings along with it. Um, there are a lot of advantages to it. It's not easy making these kind of games, but to the same extent, if you're able to create the infrastructure and the tools to be able to really get um, good feedback um, regularly and to respect that and the team respects it, then, wow, you know, you've got a really powerful tool. And, and it gets to the point where literally... Um, you know, it's not like we listen to every single thing. There are some things that we look at and we're like, well, maybe that's not us, you know, that's not the game we're making. But there are other things that are very clear to us where we're going, the customer is clearly saying to you, this is not what we were expecting or we expect something better. So we're like, okay, well, that's great. We'll get that fixed and we'll make it better. So that is a huge advantage that we have um, in, in, you know, in this space. And I think that that's one of the reasons why um, we have such a, a, a vocal and, and passionate community because they actually see the changes take place based on what they've said and their opinions and so on. So I guess in short, it was something I always wanted to be able to be part of. Um, it wasn't necessarily something that I thought I would get the opportunity to do, but I'm very happy to be here and working with Mo and the rest of the team. So yeah, it's cool. Hope that answers the question. Yeah, and I would also say in short, yes, the community basically is the other developer in the room. Yeah. Um, Take out your crystal balls, guys. Yeah. Uh, five or six years down the line, yeah. are you thinking that ArenaNet is going to basically be known as you know those Guild Wars guys, or are there new genres, new IPs, new areas that you want to explore and say, you know, we, you know, we've we've created these new worlds and we've had a lot of fun. Let's create a new world that's something different than anything that we've done previously. Well, we're certainly not going to stop innovating now. Uh, and so I think ArenaNet will be known as those online worlds guys uh, because we're all here because we're passionate about online worlds. Um, but, you know, uh, we, will, we will continue to um, invest heavily in Guild Wars 2. Um, and in addition to that, you know, I'm sure we'll get to the point where we are working on other online worlds as well. But right now, our internet is all about Guild Wars 2. Um, Colin and Eric in the first interview in here were talking about you guys are going to have a very large team devoted to, after the game comes out, producing yep. content and keeping this product moving for however long its lifespan is. What do you guys see as like the core parts of making sure to keep players coming back to Guild Wars? They've hit level 80 with a couple characters. They've seen a bunch of storylines. How do you keep them coming back to keep playing the game? Well, I think there's, uh, I mean, I think there's a couple broad areas that you need to do. First of all, um, an online world needs to be supported, you know, from month to month, basically, right? And so, um, 
you, you look at what we did with Guild Wars 1, where you know, we're constantly um, introducing new um, events, holiday events, or um, a new storyline into the game. Uh, you know, we just need to keep the world fresh so that there's always you know, something going on, something to talk about, something new to experience for people who are um, enjoying the game. And then second, of course, we will follow up with you know, um, more major um, updates also, you know, where we'll introduce big new features into the game or um, you know, uh, raise the level cap or all those kinds of things. And then we're always going to want to continue to pioneer as well. So, you know, if you, if you get the bug, the arena net bug, and you you know you get you you, you like what you see today, and you, and you think that some things are really quite innovative, then we're not going to stop. You know what I mean? We're, we're we're building a foundation. We're building the beginning of a world, the genesis of a world, if you like, built upon you know key things like the importance of community, the importance of pioneering um, and innovation. You know, we're not just going to take what we have and go. Okay, well, we'll just basically. You know, create ancillary content on top of that. We're going to continue to to br- try and break through boundaries and and always exceed expectations. So you know, it's super exciting. And you know, talking about crystal ball, that's a fascinating question because for us, Mo and I talk about it a lot. Of you know, what are we excited about and so on. The interesting thing for us is it's difficult really to have a crystal ball because we're we're we, you know as a company we drive forward um, and because we're driving forward, it's it's. It's difficult to, you know, predict on top of what we're already doing without looking too much to what, what other people are doing. So, it's an interesting question. Um, can we do one more question? Both of you. Well, mine's sort of a follow-up on this. You're talking about continuing to innovate and everything. Mm. Guild Wars 2 is built on some gameplay systems that are new to the MMO world, or at least they're drawn from successful single-player experiences. Are there things that haven't yet to be implemented that you would like to introduce later in expansions or DLC, brand new gameplay systems, or are we just talking about like a new storyline? So I'll answer it if you like. I mean, it's a, it, <laughs> I mean, I think your question is asking us to predict what major updates we're going to do to the well, game. I guess on. I'm more curious about if there's anything that's being cut uh, currently because it. it it doesn't work right now, but it, it's a really great idea that at some point we'd like to be finessed and implemented. I'll answer that. Okay. First, oh. yeah. First of all, we, we never cut anything. Okay. Um, we always backlog. Uh, secondarily, I, I'm not aware, unless Mo is, of any system or function that we've ever not basically um, got to the point where we feel that it is it is ready for, for public consumption. So, uh, unless I'm wrong, I'm sure that in the ideation period there have been some... Uh, areas of the product that were sidelined and so on, but there's nothing since I've been here which we haven't basically managed to problem solve and go forward with, and then I'll just preface before Mo talks about what does that mean for the future, well it, we're kind of, you know there's one, you know the adage of, uh, and I know this because I was very addicted to MMOs, there's one thing being addicted to playing MMOs, there's another thing being addicted to developing online worlds and I don't think we're ever going to lose that addiction the big addiction for us is that we always want to basically create things that when we go in and play it, we're surprised by it. So when we're not ba- we're not going to, to be able to um, kind of like have that, meet that need that we've built ourselves if we don't continue to um, build exciting new mechanics and systems. So. I would say there are things that we're super excited about doing that are not in um, Hill Wars 2 right now. Uh, but, I mean, I'm not going to announce to you what those sure. are today, but... 
Um, but of course, like, you know, we're here shipping Guild Wars 2 and thinking about, you know, um, what do we get to layer into the game next? And there's some awesome stuff that we're going to layer into the game next. We'll announce those at some future date. I guess, you know, uh, I'm thinking more about your question. I guess, you know, being a big player of some of the more well-known MMOs in the past, you know, in my opinion, um, personal opinion, you know, that they built a fa fantastic platform, but, you know, really breaking through barriers after that has been, you know, small incremental steps. Uh, I think, I, and Mo may correct me, I think it's fair to say that we don't really, you know, we're, we're not that interested in small incremental steps. We want to push things and uh, challenge ourselves and learn. So, yes, you can expect um, evolution, let's put it that way. Okay. Yeah. Oh, it was just a little question about the books. Are you planning new novels? Um, so we don't have any in the works right now, but uh, I do think that uh, uh, we kind of love it as a company. Um, we love as a company to be able to um, keep expanding the lore. So I'm sure that kind of thing will make a reappearance. Okay. Cool. Thanks a lot, guys. Yeah, thanks for coming. Well, thank, thank you, guys. It's great you. to see you. Um, thank you.